Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we hosted the Mayor's Town Hall with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Also, France is going to move ahead with ratification of the CETA trade deal, while Prime Minister Trudeau is going to push the deal at the EU Leaders Summit, which is being held in Montreal. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First and foremost, it's uh, the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us here in studio for the entire hour. Welcome back. Good to have you here, Mr. Mayor. Good to be here this morning, Bill. Listen, uh, we had the chief on yesterday for his town hall meeting, and we talked a little bit about what was going on with the the investigation, the pride uh, incidents that occurred, Mm -hmm. and, and some of the subsequent incidents that have happened. Uh, just as a matter of follow-up, and I just want to put this out on the table because we've got a lot of other things we want to talk about as well mm-hmm. on the program. Uh, you are in the process right now of trying once again to get people around the table. Yeah, I have been right from the very beginning, and uh, we're, we're going to continue to do that, to have a kind of a broad conversation about the issues that the queer and trans community are experiencing in our community. Uh, you know, the, uh, the only way forward, in my view, is to have uh, ongoing dialogue and continuing, continuing to build on much of the good work that we've already done. Uh, you know, the city of Hamilton has, uh, has uh, to, this, to this day, trained some 800 people on the uh, trans protocol that was uh, developed uh, over the last few years uh, with the uh, help and support of uh, former Councillor Aidan Johnson, who was our first uh, gay, gay councillor in, uh, in the city of Hamilton. We did an awful lot of great work on uh, moving forward, moving the yardsticks forward. And, you know, I can tell you that uh, if I were a queer or in trans uh, individual in our community right now, I'd certainly be concerned about you know the kind of uh, attention that this is getting, and uh, you know their their you know fear of of uh, kind of reprisals in the community that uh, can and do happen, and uh, we need to be uh, guarded against. So uh, you know, to- including everyone in our community uh, is is so important for me. Uh, you know, I I actually brought the Hamilton for All campaign to uh, to Hamilton. I saw it in another community, and I said, this is the kind of thing we need to do here in Hamilton to make sure that we include everyone. No matter what your sexual orientation is, what your skin color is, where you come from, whether you're an immigrant or not an immigrant, doesn't matter. If you're in Hamilton, Hamilton is for you, and we need to be able to provide safe and secure spaces for everyone. And so I'm uh, I'm committed to uh, continuing the dialogue and to uh, work with uh, all groups out there that uh, want to come to the table and have a two-way conversation about what more can we do. Well, I was going to ask you about that because, as we all know now, there are some people in, in, in the community that uh, that uh, refuse to attend that first meeting uh, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. But there was a common theme there. They feel as if that you and the chief of police and city council, frankly, uh, have to do more to entice them or to assuage some of their concerns. Uh, they weren't at that meeting. Do you continue to reach out to them? I mean, you want to have another meeting. I understand the chief is going to be at the next meeting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the format we laid out is we'd have a, for, you know, a first meeting with uh, myself and, uh, and others with some facilitators. Uh, we've had that meeting. It was, uh, I thought, a very uh, productive conversation. We learned a lot about their feelings and their, their thoughts about uh, where we are, both positive and negative. And uh, I think there's a continuing conversation we're going to have with the police chief present. And uh, basically, for me, that first meeting was about listening. Uh, it wasn't about me broadcasting or, or, you know, ascribing my views on, on these individuals. It was really listening to their, their comments, their concerns, their thoughts about where we are. And I expect the same to happen with the uh, police chief. And we'll continue to invite the broad spectrum in the community that we uh, originally invited. And if they choose to come, great. If they don't, well, then we'll have to find another way of uh, getting that that level of input. There uh, is a police services board meeting, which, of course, is going to happen tomorrow at City Hall. You are the chair of that committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chief yesterday suggested that he's in favor of a further investigation into this. I know he's going to present a report at the meeting tomorrow. 
uh, from uh, the investigation that they've done so far. Do you also favor continuing this investigation with an outside body? Well, I put it on the agenda for this uh, this meeting, and uh, I, I'm generally in favor of that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not always a fan of, uh, you know, investigating everything, but uh, when, when there's a lack of trust, in the community, and uh, policing is really all about trust at the end of the day, then uh, we have an issue that needs to be dealt with. And uh, we want to be able to give, uh, you know, all sides the opportunity to, uh, to you know, share their, uh, their perspectives in an independent way. So having, having an independent individual or, or group come together and have a look at the, uh, the actions of the, uh, the police and, uh, and the, the events leading up to it and, uh, you know, who said what, uh, I think is going to be uh, an opportunity for, for everyone to clear the air and hopefully get back to, uh, you know, looking forward on uh, what more can we do to ensure that there are safe, uh, inclusive places for everyone in our community. All right. We'll leave that for now, unless, of course, uh, somebody who calls in uh, wants to, to mm-hmm. ask you a specific question about that. But there's a number of things, as I mentioned, that I also want to get out there. Yep. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had you on the program and we talked about uh, the, well, let's use the dirty word, downloading. Uh, from the provincial government, uh, the announcement from the Ford government that uh, a number of things that have been cut right now, and and basically they're throwing the bill on your table. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said he was going to delay some of that stuff, uh, but it is coming. We know it's coming, and there are some things that are going to be impacted right away. Uh, Last week, uh, uh, some of your staff, I guess, did some number crunching on here and actually said, well, here's what it looks like financially. It was not a pretty picture. No, not at all a pretty picture. And, uh, you know, I mean... uh, even over and above what the uh, the province is downloading right now, uh, you know, it was going to be a tough budget year. We've had some uh, some very uh, you know tough budget years in the past, and trying to keep the uh, tax rate at or below inflation, understanding and appreciating that uh, that people in our community are not necessarily getting the wage increases that uh, that might be happening in other places. So we've tried to balance that that issue, and at the same time uh, continue to provide services and. You know, we have a growing community, and so the cost of providing those services goes up each and every year. We have uh, wage settlements. Uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, expansion in the, in the community that requires more fire department, uh, you know, response or more policing response. Well, you, you've got Chief Cunliffe asking for more bodies, and obviously you had to do that with police services last time. Right. So so these things start to accumulate, and it's, uh, it's a function of, uh, you know, having a growing community. So two things have now converged. So that issue has kind of landed on us this year. And, uh, and then the downloading from the province, uh, you know, clearly this is a download. So they're cutting off funding for, you know, f- aspects of public health, aspects of uh, paramedics. Uh, they're, uh, right now, the, the, the number is in around $12 million, which is about a percentage and a half of our budget. And that's, that's only what we know of right now. It, uh, that doesn't include what uh, possibly is, is still yet to come. And so uh, it is going to be a very difficult budget year, and uh, hopefully people appreciate that, uh, you know, these things are not always of our doing. These, uh, you know, these downloads from the province are are costs that uh, we've shared uh, in the past that they're saying they're not going to cover anymore. And uh, that makes it typically hard for municipalities to be able to deal with that on any kind of a budget year. We had the same thing happen, uh, you know, back in the... uh, the 2000s, when the uh, the federal government actually did a significant amount of downloading, and as, as you recall, Bill, you were there at the time, I believe, that uh, you know housing was downloaded to yep. municipalities yep. Uh, without any uh, without any money or resources to uh, to maintain these these houses, and we've struggled with that ever since. And the cost has been going up, and we have to repair and maintain all of this housing stock that uh, was originally uh, you know owned and managed and operated by the federal government. So we uh, you know we we continuously find that. Uh, 
the way that uh, our upper tier levels of government balance their budget is by driving the cost down to the lower tier. Well, and uh, the housing crisis is a double whammy right now because, you, first of all, you got stuck with that stock. It's in bad repair right now. Mm-hmm. You were hoping to get money from the provincial government uh, from the cap-and-trade program. There's a significant amount of money that was going to come in. He yep. canceled that, too. Yep. So this is all on your lap right now. Right now, uh, we're, we are counting on the federal government to come through with, uh, with their housing strategy and their housing funding. Uh, unfortunately, I understand that uh, that's being held up by the province in terms of how the money flows. And so we, we could be getting a lot more direct uh, funding from the federal government that uh, isn't currently happening. We do have our $60 million uh, you know, affordable or $50 million affordable housing plan, a poverty plan that uh, has been very, very helpful and has inspired a lot of housing projects in the city that otherwise might not have happened. But we need a, a heck of a lot more. And, uh, you know, a national housing strategy is critical and uh, help and assistance from the provinces uh, is going to be needed as well. Uh, together we can actually knock this issue down, but uh, it, it can't be done solely on the local taxpayers. Well, and th- it's got to be awfully frustrating for you and your council colleagues, mm-hmm. because as you watch what's going on here, you've got the federal government and the provincial government bickering right now about who's right, who's wrong. The money doesn't flow. Well, you don't have a plan. Yes, we do. You haven't looked at it. You haven't back and forth like this. And, and you and every other city in the province right now are the ones that are sitting there saying, could you please settle this? Well, exactly. I mean, what we ask for from other levels of government is predictable funding sources. Uh, you know, give us give us some predictability. Give us some some form of gas tax revenue that uh, you know. Thankfully, we still have. Although you know, the province has cut back on what was promised by the previous government in terms of doubling the gas tax. We actually got a double whammy on the Presto Card thing because the mm-hmm. the, the deal the, that we had struck was okay. We'll accept the Presto Card increase province if you, uh, you know, enhance the the gas tax. And so uh, change of government, uh, we had the uh, Presto card increase, but we never, never did get the gas tax increase. So predictable revenue sources for municipalities is critically important. We're still at a cap-in-hand kind of approach. Uh, there's been some improvement, so gas tax revenue is one way that uh, both the federal and provincial governments have been able to deliver money to municipalities that we can rely on. Uh, cutbacks in those areas are never helpful. And at the same time, uh, there's politics going on now between our federal liberal government and our provincial conservative government. And uh, I think I think the, the sense of it is that the, uh, the local provincial conservative government isn't about to uh, help the federal government get some of this money out the door because they don't want them to get the, uh, the wins. And in the result of that acrimonious relationship, of course, is everybody is suffering. Mayor Tory's, uh, you know, begging and, and so is the, uh, Jim Watson in Ottawa. Yep. I mean, on and on it goes. Yep. Uh, I want to talk just, I know we're going to go to calls in a couple of minutes here, but mm-hmm. uh, about the, the, the budget pressures once again. And you mentioned that, uh, that traditionally what you've tried to do uh, as, as mayor and we, with your council colleagues is any budget increases, any any tax increases, usually around the cost of inflation. The Inflationary, yeah. Uh, or sometimes below. You've had a couple of really good years where you're able to do that. Right. Uh, the number staff floated this time was 6.7%. Uh, that's... Now, no, I know that the, obviously that's the, the start the starting number, point, yeah. but that boy, that's a big nut to crack to get that back down to the cost of inflation. Yeah, to uh, to get that down to below two percent uh, is something in the order of about forty-five million dollars of cuts that we would have to make. And there's only one, you know, there's only one outcome on that, and that is cutting services off. There's uh, there's no magic bullet here that says uh, we could just get eliminate this or eliminate that, and therefore it's kind of revenue neutral. Uh, this is going to be if we're if we're going to get there. Uh, 
uh, it is going to be, you know, some measure of service cuts. And, uh, you know, with service cuts comes staffing cuts. And I'm, I don't think the majority of council wants to go there. We need a lot of these uh, services that are out there now. We are pretty lean uh, as it is in terms of budgeting. So, you know, all the years that we've had 2% or less uh, inflationary increases doesn't mean that uh, we've actually generated more revenue to do more things in a growing community. We've been able to find efficiencies to be able to afford to do that. Uh, we're, we're kind of at the, at the bottom, uh, bottom of the line at this point in terms of finding efficiencies. And so uh, it's going to be an interesting to see how we're going to get there. Yeah, but this is deja vu for you. I mean, you were just uh, the, the ward councillor for, for Ward 5 yep. back in the days of, of, of my care's downloading. Mm-hmm. And, and the mantra we got from Queen's Park in those days was, go find 4% savings and you'll be just fine. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's an abstract number. Uh, and, and again, what staff did at that time was said, okay, here's what 4% means. Here's what we're going to have to cut. And here's the departments right. that are going to be impacted. Yeah. You, you're going through that same exercise now. Uh, and back then, there were some pretty difficult decisions that were have discussed around council. Do we really need three civic golf courses? Do we really need two long-term care facilities? A uh, number of other things. Do we start selling off assets and things of this nature? Uh, is this council prepared to have those tough discussions again? Um, I, I doubt it. Uh, these are, these are, you know, well-tested, uh, you know, debates that we've had for many, many years. And, uh, you know, I think there's a belief that some of the services that we currently maintain are, are ones that, uh, the community wants and appreciates. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really want to go out for another RFP for golf courses when I know full well that by the time we get envelopes on the table, people are going to, going to get pressure from the community at large to say, these are civic golf courses. We don't want them to be in private hands. Uh, so, you know, we go down that road. I've been that we've been down that road several times and to, to no avail. And so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, these are always options, but uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that these are options that this council is going to accept. So the alternative then is, as you mentioned, service cuts or increases in, in fees. Uh, it's going to cost more to rent the, uh, the ice at, uh, at the arenas. It's going to cost more to play golf. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going to have to go on the table that are going to be very, user, very unpalatable. User fees are likely to be uh, a, a, a target for us for sure. Uh, you know, Recapturing the cost of uh, the delivering services is going to be, uh, you know, paramount, and we've already had those discussions on a lot of areas. And you know, at the at the end of the day, and I, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be 6.7 percent, but uh, at some point, people should start to realize that two uh, percent is probably not going to be achievable this year, or an inflationary increase, because uh, you know the amount of cuts that would have to happen would would uh, would be, I think, unpalatable for the community at large. The the challenge, aside from the, the obviously the financial challenges we've just discussed here, is is to get that message across so the pe- the the public understands exactly what's going on and what that two percent means. If you want us to get to two percent, we're going to have to do this, 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 and this. Right. So we're going to have we're going to have three scenarios. We're going to have uh, you know make no changes at all. We know what that number is. Uh, get us down to four uh, percent and get us down to two percent. So uh, you know we're, we're going to see what all those options look like and what uh, what impacts they may have in the broader community. And we're going to have we're going to have to be as public as possible to let people understand and appreciate, you know, what we might uh, need to cut if we're to get to that kind of lower percentage rate. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, people will, I think, quickly realize that these are uh, valuable services in our community that people don't want to hive off. And pushing, you know, pushing capital uh, projects down the road, uh, you know, we know that game, what that game looks like because you're just kicking the can down the road. And then sooner or later, you're going to have a, you know, a, a nine or 10%, uh, you know, increase looking looking at you because you've you've actually deferred a lot of capital works that uh, need to happen now 
and we're already uh, some $200 million uh, behind on some of the capital works that uh, need to happen in our community. So it's going to be a difficult year. Uh, there's no easy way through this, but uh, I think with uh, you know the good hard work of uh, our budget staff, and we have great, great uh, leadership uh, through Mike Zagarek in our community here that uh, is leading our financial, uh, financial department, uh, I have great confidence that we'll come to a reasonable conclusion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. Uh, email from Alan says, uh, I believe what was called the, the original city wards got to uh, get a million dollars each year to spend on their ward on different projects. The mm-hmm. councillors take polls each year asking their constituents what they would like to do with the money, while the rest of us in Ancaster, Dundas, and Waterdown look on with envy, wishing we were getting this money too. Uh, he suggests you end this unfair program. The city would save several million dollars and maybe be more equitable. Your thoughts? Well, it's uh, you know it was a balancing act on the area rating piece. So uh, you know the over the over the uh, since amalgamation, the area rating has uh, has has been distorted, and so services that people were getting in suburban areas uh, they weren't paying for, and so this was intended to be the balancing act between that uh, that issue. Rather than increasing taxes in the suburban area, money would flow to the uh, to the old city of Hamilton uh, wards to kind of balance that out. Uh, over time, that has become an issue, and uh, I think uh, what we see is that suburban councillors all would like to have uh, you know a million dollars to uh, to actually uh, you know help uh, you know improve their ward. I've always believed that it needs to be hard infrastructure that uh, that people are dealing with, and uh, I'd much prefer, and I haven't been able to have council agree to this. I'd much prefer that that amount of money would be put into a pool. For uh, for staff to come and make recommendations on uh, where they need it needs to be used. So there have been, <clears throat> in my view, some abuses where it hasn't been hard infrastructure that it's been used for, and uh, that certainly rubs people the wrong way. And especially if you're uh, in Ancaster and you're seeing this happening in the city of Hamilton. So I uh, don't disagree with his notion. I would like a better way of doing that. Uh, we'll continue to work to see if we can find that. Uh, the the other aspect of area rating that's left to be uh, worked through is the. Uh, the uh, transit area rating that uh, is an issue that's also going to come up and uh, has to be dealt with at some point. There is now a significant imbalance there as well where suburban areas that uh, previously wouldn't have had transit to the degree that they have uh, are getting transit now and uh, not really paying the same rate as uh, others others in the old city of Hamilton. So we have to sort these issues out and they're always complex and no one wants to pay more taxes, but the reality is that we have to balance it out. Because when this whole thing was decided, or actually being discussed and debated some years ago, uh, I, I suggested, and we've talked about this many times on the program, mm-hmm. is if if if, the, if there was a perceived uh, inequity here, and okay, that money has to flow back into into the original eight wards, uh, you have an infrastructure deficit and and a list about a mile long of projects that you'd love to be able to do that you just mm-hmm. don't have the money for. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just throw that money into a pot and say, okay, uh, these are the uh, deficit projects in Ward One, these are the ones in Ward Two, and let staff work on those. Yeah. Instead of instead of the perception. And I'm not suggesting everybody does this, but nope. I think a lot of people think that, look at the councillors use this as a slush fund to try to curry favor in certain areas of their ward. And, and I'm not saying they do it all the time, but the perception's there that they do. Why don't you take it out of their hands and let staff make those decisions? Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think we've had that conversation on several occasions. And of course, uh, you know, we don't necessarily get unanimous support from council to go that uh, down that road. Uh, on the other side of the argument, I think uh, the, the lion's share of these monies have been utilized for park acquisition. So we have school boards that uh, are, are disposing of properties. And obviously, there's always that notion that, uh, you know, 
places that people have expected to use this park, although even though they were now owned by the school board, they expect to continue to use this park. And so a lot of the resources that, that, that have been identified have been to purchase and acquire uh, parks. And whenever that happens in all the other suburban areas, uh, monies are made available to be able to do that. So there's two schools of thought. Either you take the monies and put them in a pool, or you provide the same kind of benefit to all the councillors uh, throughout the city to cr- create equity and fairness in, in that sense. Uh, I, I think it's a perception, not a reality, that, that it's unfair because it is a balancing of the area rating issue. So it is dollars that uh, are cu- would currently have been a tax increase in the suburban areas. Uh, they deferred that by you know sending that money into into the uh, c- the old city of Hamilton to uh, to do the infrastructure work. So many issues there. I would say I agree with you if we can pool it. Um, that's probably the best way. If not, find a way of giving every uh, every ward that the benefit that uh, other other wards receive. Because, well, as Alan just said in his email, there's a lot of discontent, and I hear this consistently mm-hmm. uh, in, in in the Ancasters, the Glenbrooks, and Stony Creeks about this. I do too. And and your point, I think, is well taken here. Uh, if this council is finally going to make a decision about transit funding, uh, you're going to just throw salt on a wound that's already there, and, and you're going to have an awful lot of discontented taxpayers. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a problem. I, I, you know, I, I, I hearken back to when amalgamation happened. I wish that the uh, the government of the day didn't uh, employ area rating the way they have today. Uh, you know, the the best way that we can actually protect uh, areas that aren't getting services is to have an urban and rural split. So if you live in the urban area and you get all the services that urban areas require, then you should pay for that. And if you don't, then you should have a different uh, tax rate. I got this is a story I think I've told on the air before, but I think it's very germane to, to what you're just saying here. As that debate was going on, uh, and and staff were suggesting this area rating is one of the tools that could be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our dear friend, the late Bernie Morelli, uh, stood up and made his little speech, and he says, "Watch out for this," because he says, "You know," he says, "Well, because the the staff said, oh, it's just going to be temporary," and he says, "No, it won't be." No. He says, "Once you put that in there, he says, you will not be able to take it away." Right. People will go out. They'll be outraged by that, and he was, right. he was and we, bang on. And we struggle with it still, and it's it's going to be an ongoing struggle going forward. Uh, I think we need to get to the urban suburban split. I think that's where uh, where it makes uh, you know perfect sense. Uh, the the whole intention of area rating was to protect suburban communities for paying for services they weren't going to get. Uh, but now we know that uh, those suburban areas are urbanized to the degree that uh, the old city of Hamilton is urbanized, most parts of. And so those areas ought to be paying the same rate as everybody else. <clears throat> so, yeah, I rue the day that they put it in place. Uh, some had made some warnings about uh, this is not going to be a short-term uh, project. And here we are some 20 years later, and we're still bickering about the area rating. All right, uh, <laughs> 905-645-3221, start 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, a week or so ago, my uh, darling wife and I were enjoying lunch in downtown Hamilton mm-hmm. and uh, ran into a common friend of ours, uh, one Jasper Kajafsky. Oh, yeah. uh, and we got talking, as you might have expected, uh, about arenas mm-hmm. um, and uh, the fact that there's been no resolution on this. There's been a lot of talk. There's been some reports done. I guess they were waiting for another report to come on. Right. Uh, is, is this council going to have to make a, a tough decision in the next year or so about what they're going to do? Uh, there's, there are interested parties, Mr. Andlar being one of them, of mm-hmm. course, but a lot of other people, possibly some of investors who are may uh, look w- w- very envious eyes at that piece of, piece of property down there and said, hey, I could do something with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are we in this process? Well, we're, uh, we're awaiting a report back from our staff on, uh, on uh, the, 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 the process that they've evolved to look at the entire precinct. So, uh, you know, until such time as we get a, a good sense from some professional, well-thought-of uh, thought people that can come to the table 
table and say, here's what we think the future looks like for this uh, this area, including convention center, Hamilton Place, art gallery, uh, uh, the arena, and you know, and, <clears throat> and in some respects, it actually includes uh, you know all of Jackson Square in terms of a visioning exercise, including uh, city center. And the lands around it, uh, including Sir John A. Macdonald's site and other places, the Salvation Army site. So, what you know, what what's the roadmap for this area going forward? What are our needs going to be? What kind of facilities can we support? Uh, what what would the private sector be prepared to do? I think that is going to be. And what you know, what does uh, you know our sports franchises uh, you know want to have happen, and where do they want to have that happen? I think that's an issue that we're going to have to deal with uh, promptly. So we're waiting for a report back in terms of how that flows out. And uh, as I've said, this is not going to be a quick and easy process, but uh, we need to get to it expeditiously because I think there's a lot of um, a lot of issues on the line here, and uh, some people waiting in the wings to kind of understand where are they going to be holding their sports franchise in the next uh, over the next few years. Having said that, we are investing in uh, uh, formerly Cops Coliseum, now First Ontario Place. Uh, the, uh, the elevators are uh, being improved. The escalators are being repaired. Uh, you know, I think we can, uh, we can certainly keep this facility going. I think, uh, you know, significantly it may be that, uh, it, th- there's a change in terms of the venue in terms of sports, or maybe it's a concert hall, or maybe it's, uh, it's what it is today uh, going forward. Uh, that, that's still an open question and it has to do with economics at the end of the day. What, what are, what do we need? And then, uh, you know, what does it take to actually get us what we need? Sometimes, though, you've got to have a leap of faith as, as an elected official. Because mm-hmm. uh, I know that in the past, uh, when anybody ever talked about, for instance, a private-public relationship with, uh, to manage those facilities, uh, those councils of that day said, no, we're not going there. We can't, we can't give up any of our, our mm-hmm. responsibilities here. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, in desperation, you said, okay, fine, we're going to do this. And, and you hired on, and it's worked out pretty well. It has. It, it worked out well. And I mean, it's not a philosophy that we've abandoned. Uh, quite frankly, we're looking at other, you know, t- Tiffany lands, for instance, that we fully own and, and uh, you know, is now open to uh, a film studio. So we're more than happy to have people come to us with uh, thoughts and ideas about what they think uh, they could do and how that would benefit the city of Hamilton. Uh, we're in the same kind of space uh, with, with all of these facilities. And there may be various elements that some people are prepared to do. Is The question becomes, how do you bring that together? Uh, and that, that has a certain amount of complexity associated with it. And, you know, when I hearken back to, uh, you know, what they did in Ottawa with, with, their, uh, with their stadium and mm-hmm. the development around the stadium, uh, that really became a predominantly par- private sector play where the private sector actually built the stadium. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't ask for any civic dollars. They didn't uh, get any civic dollars, but they got rights to properties to, to be able to develop and generate additional revenue. And I think that's the model that we're currently looking at in terms of how, do, how can all of this happen without having to have the taxpayers uh, foot the bill. The problem, though, and we, we talked about this, as, as I said, when we were having our little luncheon meeting about this, mm-hmm. is the clock is ticking. I know you can't rush into this, but at the same time, uh, if there's an economic downturn, and, and, and we all know that economies are cyclical, there is going to be an economic downturn. We just don't know when it's going to be. Yep. Uh, that investment money dries up. Yeah, I know. And you no, you we, may be said, okay, we're ready to go now, and, and people are going to say, well, wish you, wish you were there a year ago. We just yep. can't do it now. Uh, I, I think we're going as expeditiously as possible. You know, without uh, you know, if you rush and hurry these things, uh, you you, uh, you you end up possibly tripping on things that uh, you don't want to have to trip over, uh, or costing us uh, more money than we need to, or causing you know other problems that we uh, didn't foresee and should have. And so uh, you know, this is not a small endeavor. Uh, this is almost a reimagining of you know a, a significant part of our downtown that has been with us for the past. 
when, when, when we redo it in the, in the 60s. So, uh, you know, it's been, been with us for 60 years. And we'll have to stand the, the test of time for the next uh, 60 or, or 100 years. So you don't do that in, uh, in, a, in the space of a couple of months. So it's going to take a few years to get through, but uh, looking forward to getting to it. All right, uh, Hamilton uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger with us here at Mayor's Town Hall here at 900 CHML. Uh, let me get to the phone calls here. Uh, Bob, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning? Hello. Hi, Bob. Go ahead. Ah, yes. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a number of questions I'd like to ask, so I try and be brief here. Uh, number one is the long weekends. I'd like to put my boat in the water, mm-hmm. but you got the only dock in Hamilton side tied up with people, and nobody's allowed to use the ramp to put the boat in the water. You Would- tore out the power docks, you tore out the ramp that was beside the uh, Good Times Fishing Club, but you didn't, you know, no place for me to put my boat in on the long weekend. Mm-hmm. Right. You, can't, you can't put your boat in at, uh, at Bayfront Park? No, it's closed. It's public, right? There's no parking. Um, can't get at the ramp. No, I mean, I'm, 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 unless I'm, you're thinking of a different location. You, uh, th- right it's down open by the tracks, and, right? You know, open to the public, tracks. right? You at the tracks where the boat launches for the public use, right? The it's closed on long weekends. Okay, I'm not, I'm not aware of that, but I'll check that out. Right, I cannot put my boat in the water like last long weekend. You'd like to go put the boat in the water, maybe catch a fish. It's only a 14-foot boat. It's mm-hmm. not a monster. Right. right. Uh, second no. point is, uh, I was certified in industrial handling of waste, and if I dumped anything into that harbor, I'd lose my job. I'd mm-hmm. like to know what happens to the people that are responsible for all that sewage going into our harbor. <laughs> you know, okay, like, Bob, thank you. There should be an investigation into that. Right. Uh, that's been an ongoing issue. So, so uh, you know, one of the, the challenges we have in terms of our sewage treatment capacity is capacity. And, uh, you know, I, I can hearken back to my first day as mayor where we almost had the, uh, the sewage treatment plant uh, overflow and uh, brown out the pumps and would have caused uh, flooding in about 60% of the basements. And ever since then, we've been increasing the capacity of the, uh, the, the, the ability for the, tr- the system to handle the, the flow. And because we have a combined sewer and storm uh, system... S- sorry? Can I use a suggestion, please? Well, can I, can I finish my, my thought? Yeah, and uh, I'll, Bob, I'm, I'm gonna, open I'm lots gonna, of I'm going to ask you to listen, uh, because we're very short on time, and I want to let the mayor answer this. So just uh, we're going to let you go, and you can listen to this on the radio, because we're just about out of time here. Go ahead, So, so since then, we've, been, uh, we've, we've done combined sewer overflow tanks to hold, hold back the, uh, the flow to, so that when the storm is over, they can release that and not overpower the sewage treatment plant. We're expanding the capacity of the treatment plant to uh, be able to handle the, uh, the major flows, but we have such volume of, of rains and storms these days that it, uh, it actually forces us to bypass a primary treated, but, uh, but still not fully treated uh, you know, water and sewage. And so uh, that's going to be a condition for us for quite some time until we get that capacity increased and upped. And then we, and, and then we need to re- reduce the flow going into the system. And that's one of the issues that uh, we're currently dealing with in terms of how do you do that, whether you get people to take their roof leaders off of the system and put it on grass, make the grass absorb. We have uh, water retention ponds everywhere now in part, as part of new developments. All of that geared to 
reducing the flow so that we don't over overpower uh, the sewage treatment plant and don't have to do bypasses in the future. So we're heading that way, but we're not quite there yet. And, and I know that uh, sometimes headlines it can be misleading if you're reading a story about this. Uh, and when they talked about you know sewage going in there, it's not untreated sewage. No. I, 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 we had folks from the Bay Area on, uh, you know, the Restoration Council about this, and mm-hmm. uh, to clarify that, and and uh, it's it's wrong that it's there. It's unfortunate that this is happening, but it's not as if we're just throwing raw sewage in there like we used to do in past generations. No, and if if we don't do it, then we do have the ability to overpower the sewage treatment plant and brown out the pumps and cause a heck of a lot more flooding in the city because it's all going to back up into people, people's basements. So uh, that's a, that's the worst case scenario that we don't want to have happen. So we're we're forced to bypass primary treated sewage, not untreated sewage. And uh, we are working on getting the capacity up at the sewage treatment plant so we don't have to do that anymore. Uh, your point, though, about uh, the drainage uh, is, is very important on this, too, because uh, th- we do, each and every one of us as, as homeowners, have a responsibility here, too. Uh, you're not supposed to let your rainwater run off into the sewer system. You're supposed to disconnect that and let it run onto the lawn. Uh, and I know a lot of people that still haven't done that. Well, that contributes to the problem. It does, and uh, and you know we're encouraging people to uh, to get the rain barrels and get their their uh, the leaders not onto the driveway because that just goes into the system anyway, but onto some surface that will absorb that. We need to start looking at uh, absorption uh, on the you know the massive parking lots that we have, and encouraging people to find a different way of absorbing it. We're actually requiring a lot of the large uh, landowners and parking lots to have retention tanks so that they can hold back the the flow and then uh, let it out slowly when the the storm is over. But we're also experiencing massive amounts of rain in short periods of time. That 100-year storm is now happening, you know, every every 10 or 20 years. So we're, we're, climate change is certainly having an impact on how we're dealing with this. Uh, this is very timely. Uh, just as you were mentioning that and explaining this uh, to, to our last caller, mm-hmm. uh, I just got a tweet from Anthony Farnell, the uh, chief meteorologist for Global News. There's a heavy rainfall warning, of course, for Hamilton for mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says there could be local flooding, so be aware of that. So that's very timely, which uh, we could exacerbate everything you've just talked about here, make it things a little worse. Yeah, and... Uh, you know what? We want to make sure that we uh, protect people's homes and properties, and uh, we don't want any backups to happen. And uh, so the best way to do that is to be able to manage what we what we have. And uh, bypasses are, are unfortunately, uh, you know, it's a, a part of the system that we have to uh, employ right now, but it's not what we want to do. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, thanks so much to everybody who uh, didn't get through there. I, we'll try to get you next time. We'll be uh, doing this once again in a couple of weeks. So, Mr. Mayor, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we'll be watching <clears> at the Police <throat> Services Board meeting, and uh, we'll have you back here just as soon as we can. Have a great summer. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk trade. Uh, the uh, Prime Minister is uh, pushing right now to uh, have the EU leaders uh, ratify a deal that they've been talking about for quite some time. And as we said, even when there's an agreement in principle, until you, the governing bodies, the parliaments, uh, the legislatures, whatever it might be, actually ratify that, there is no deal in place. And uh, the deal we're talking about here is the, the CETA deal. It's called the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement. Uh, joining us in studio here to talk about this is uh, Marvin Ryder from the DeGood School of Business at McMaster. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here, did, Bill. Did you beat the rain? <laughs> no, and I thought it was hilarious. I saw some people out washing windows while it was raining. <laughs> I, I hated to tell them. I think that's an uphill task. Torrential rain, and it's a thunderstorm and a rain warning for the Hamilton area, by the way. So uh, keep an eye on your uh, your drains down in Absolutely. the basement as we go through. All right, let, let's talk about this. Uh, it's it's uh, been a tough year for Canada when it comes to international trade <laughs> deals. I think uh, that's a massive understatement. Well, 
I, I would say it's a mixed year, Bill, but let's talk about CETA specifically. And if you yeah. don't mind, I want to take you back before we go forward. Uh, CETA, this comprehensive agreement on trades and tariffs, um, was begun under Stephen Harper. Uh, it was finished under Justin Trudeau. And on October 30th, 2016, not quite three years ago, uh, Mr. Trudeau went to Europe for a big signing ceremony. Of course, the signing ceremonies don't mean anything. So the next step is ratification. And on September uh, 2017, a little less than two years ago, the European Parliament ratified the deal. And you would like to think, well, then it's done. It's done. Hallelujah. But the uh, European courts determined that this trade deal was what they called a mixed trade deal, meaning that it needed ratification by both the European Union Parliament and all 28 member states. So, good, luck, good luck with that. Good luck with that. So um, the good news was that on September 21st, 2017, 90% of the agreement came into force because the European controlled those things. But to get the full value, you had to go place by place. Now, Bill, I'm going to give you a test. <laughs> I'm going to give you a test. There are 28 nation members of the European Union. The following 13 have ratified CETA. I'm going to read the names to you. I want you to tell me what names jump out at you because they're not on this list. They're not on this list. Here are the people who have ratified it. Austria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. We got Malta on, though. You got Malta, thank God where's, for Malta. Where's France and where's Germany? Where's France and where's Germany? So outside of the United Kingdom, and of course the United Kingdom's continuing membership in the European Union is under question, the two biggest economies are France and Germany. So what Mr. Trudeau has been doing at all of these big meetings, the G8, the G20, the NATO meetings, he's had these little side talks with Andrea Merkel and, and uh, Mr. Macron from France to say, hey... Where are you guys on this? Now, again, here's the good news. His talking with Mr. Macron has worked. And just about a month ago, on June 17th, the French Parliament, the National Assembly in France, introduced legislation to ratify the deal, and Mr. Macron has given Mr. Trudeau, as best he can, an assurance that it'll be done by the end of this year. Good. Okay, that'd be number 14. We're halfway there. <coughs> But there are other countries. Uh, you mentioned Germany, but there's Italy isn't on that list. Netherlands isn't on that list. Belgium's not on that list. And so what is happening today and tomorrow is that a fellow named Donald Tusk and a fellow named Paul Juncker, uh, these are the closest you get to presidents, if you will, of the whole European Union, are visiting Montreal for a two-day summit. They're going to talk about all kinds of things. They're going to talk about security. They're probably going to talk about the Iran situation, uh, other international things. But the one that we want to talk to them about is, okay, guys, it's been almost two years. What can you do to round up these other members and get them to sign this? And I think that's what he's going to press a lot in Montreal over these two days. Mr. Trudeau would like a win. And now you mentioned that it's been a tough year for Canada on trade. And certainly when it comes to China, there is no better way to describe it than yeah. a tough year. With, with the United States, it's been actually a good year in the sense that we signed a North American free trade deal, whatever you want to call it, USMCA, Muska, Cusma, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the ratification is getting bogged down a little bit. But, you know, again, I look at the glass half full. Mexico is signed on. Canada will likely ratify it before the summer is out. That just leaves the United States. We're moving on that file. The China file is the one that's mired down. So as we head into a fall election, I think Mr. Trudeau wants to point at some of his successes. He just needs a little more out of Europe at this point. 
What's the holdup? Uh, why? Why no? Well, France, I guess we can put the, you know, on this side of the ledger now because you got that agreement. Moving, and, and, yes. Yeah. But but what about the rest of them? Uh, Germany and, and these others and Italy. I mean, is there a problem with some of the, the stuff in that? <laughs> the, well, Bill, uh, welcome to politics. Politics yeah. 101. Uh, nothing ever stands still. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Mr. Trump in the United States was elected on a wave of populism. Populism is kind of what's good for me comes first, what's good for everybody else comes second. So the Italian parliament, uh, the German parliament, Bundestag, uh, and others are a little concerned. And they're just not sure there's enough protection for their local industries. Oh, they'd love to have access to Canada and, and then through Canada maybe to the United States and the rest of North America. That's the easy part. But, oh, I don't know if I want to give up my own local concerns. So, uh, and by the way, most of this comes down to agriculture. It almost always sure. comes down to agriculture. We're worried about the little farmers. Do they have enough protection? Do they have those things? And so because governments, their elections and governments change, their philosophies change, there's some concern. And now if we don't get, and I'll be... I'll be evil here, Bill. Uh, one country that's not on the list is Poland. Well, if we don't get Poland on board, it's probably not the end of the world. But by God, we sure need Germany and France to be a part of this. We'd love to have Italy as part of this. I think it's interesting. Spain, who's the fourth largest territorial economy in Europe, I'm taking the United Kingdom out of this, they're on board, Portugal's on board, so many of them, but we, I think this is what Mr. Trudeau keeps trying to do at all these meetings, is with these little one-on-ones, encourage them to come on board. But that's the problem, 28 nations have to ratify this. You might think NAFTA's hard, but it's only three, 28. But to, to have these heartful discussions, I mean, I can understand the Italian situation because of the politics are there. Uh, you know, they usually have coalition governments. Uh, mm -hmm. They've probably had two elections since you and I started talking a few minutes ago. Have, yes. uh, they seem to fall apart all the time, so yep. it's going to be hard to get consensus there. It would be. But you've got strong leadership in those other two, in France and in Germany. It's, uh, I mean, if Merkel wanted this to go, it, it goes. That's, that's yeah, you, you would think that, Bill. She, she is a strong leader. Unfortunately, in the last two years, her party has been losing seats as they have regional elections. And then there's another question as to how much a country like Germany can approve this at the national level, or do they have to get local government? So do they need to get the Bavarian people? It'd be like going province by province as opposed to having Canada vote for this. Do I have Quebec on board? And the minute you bring it down, so take the Belgium situation. You may not remember this, but uh, in 2017, a regional parliament in a little area called Wallonia, Wallonia, wonderful name, Wallonia. They were the ones holding up Belgium's approval. Remember that, yeah. And, um, and they're still... <laughs> on board even today. They they came on board enough that Belgium could sign it, if you will, at the EU level, but in terms of the local level, it has not. And that's that's some of the problem still with the European Union. If anyone thinks they speak with one voice, they don't. They are 28 people in a chorus, but not all of them are on key all the time. Well, to your point about politics, too, uh, you're right. I mean, Merkel's party has lost a number of seats, uh, and it's been to this hard right party, the opposition party there, so, which, of course, is, is espousing that populism that you just talked about. Right. Like, we don't need the rest of the world. Right. You know, we're, we're the strong people here. We don't need this sort of thing. Or, again, Bill, let me, let me again be candid. I, I think this is a great deal for both sides. I think it's a great deal for Canada. It's a great deal for the European Union. But on a list of their top five priorities, I'm not sure it's there. In other words, uh, Germany has some issues with um, 
immigration, you know, the great flood, the exodus of people from North Africa that came in trying to settle those things down, some security issues. I think Europe is much more concerned about the state of Iran and getting nuclear weapons back than said we are here in Canada. So I, I don't, I can't actually blame them always that they're list top 10 list or top five list to do is not including Canada on this. But Mr. Trudeau, again, I'm going to say this, and I know there'll be people who hate me for saying this. I think he actually is very effective when he meets with these leaders one-on-one because he has a really simple pitch. If you can't get a free trade deal with Canada, who's the nicest country in the world, who the hell are you going to get a free trade agreement with? If, if you say, well, we really would rather have one with the United States, good luck with that. We've watched Mr. Trump up close. Yeah. There, <laughs> your, your ability to get that is next to nothing. We're, we're your friends, and especially with France, uh, England, and Germany in some ways. There's a big displaced population who make up this country. Uh, my roots, if you go back far enough, are German and, and English. Uh, I don't have many French connections to me, but, you know, th- these are sort of native people. We're, we're friends, we're buddies, and so I think he keeps pressing that. I have great confidence. They've got four years to do this. We're not two years into the process, so we're not up against a big deadline at the moment. But I think this is why when you can bring Mr. Juncker and Mr. Tusk onto Canadian soil in Montreal and wine them and dine them for a couple of days, this is something you want to bring to their attention. But it, when you look at the balance sheet here, um, like you say, NAFTA is there, NAFTA two, whatever you want to call it, uh, which will probably eventually be ratified by the United States. I don't know what's going to happen before the election next year, mm-hmm. but it's as you say, there's still a window of opportunity. Uh, the China thing is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but we, we, can can he hang his hat on the CETA deal and say, yeah, but look what we got. This is really going to benefit a, a number of sectors in the Canadian economy. Well, and he'll also mention the Trans-Pacific Partnership, sure. which, which is, or we can now call it TPP-11 because it doesn't include the United States, but includes 11 other nations. And, and you know, this is really kind of odd. This whole thing, whether it's free trade with Europe, free trade with the Pacific Rim, uh, other countries that we've had free trade agreements with, that sounds much more like a small C or a big C conservative agenda. They're always talking trade. So why he wants this is it cuts off some of the people who say you're not friendly to business. He's friendly to business, but he's trying to do it in some kind of a balanced way. Uh, and I think I think he can point to those things. Now, will that get votes in the fall? It, Bill, I, I, I'm not a political uh, scientist, but as an observer of politics, it always seems to me elections boil down to, am I better off today than I was four years ago? If I feel good, if I feel the economy is strong, if I feel secure in my job, Let's keep that guy in for four more years. If I don't feel good about my personal lot in life, let's get rid of the person. That's what sort of what happened with Kathleen Wynne last year. Even though she did some tremendous things, I think, socially, the average person said, oh, my hydro bill's gone up. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Let's put somebody else in charge. Mind you, again, we've seen how well that has worked out for Ontario. But we tend to vote against a party yeah. or reaffirm them as not so much the opposition that we're voting for. Well, we've had in a, a number of discussions, of course, about the negotiations in the in the NAFTA deal, and uh, one of the the stumbling blocks, of course, was the dairy industry, yes. and uh, and that is now in that deal. And we heard that they were not happy with the way that it was no. negotiated, especially in Quebec. Yet, when you look at the polling numbers, the Liberals are doing extremely well in Quebec, better than they did in the last couple of years, as a matter of fact. So I'm sure there are some discontented people there, but it doesn't seem to be spreading. Yeah, Bill, my my roots, both of my parents came from farms, and so there are many family friends who come from farms. And I, I understand the concern, and it's... I call it a myopic concern. Let me try to explain that to you. Uh, These nice farmers say, you're going to let Americans come into my market. I've had control of my market, and I'm going to lose. 
And I say, yes, yeah, you might lose a little. In this free trade deal, uh, we're prepared to give the Americans up to a half a percent more of the dairy market. That's not a lot. But what are we getting in exchange? You now have better access to the American market. And, and the Canadian market is one-tenth the size of the American market. If you can get a bigger chunk of the American market, go for it. And that's the problem. We need to get Canadians thinking not so much about what am I losing locally, but what am I gaining access to? If I can get into these markets and start selling my products abroad, think of what it's going to do for me. And, and frankly, Bill, Canada's standard of living is entirely based on our ability to export. If we only sell to ourselves, we would not have the standard of living we enjoy. We have to get out there and trade. Yes, there's damage. China's a great example. As we've been selling to China, we've been selling a lot of stuff to China, and then all of a sudden China changes its mind, it's going to hurt us. But that's what you have to do to maintain this. You've got to get out there. So I would say to the dairy farmers, whether they're in Ontario or Quebec, yes, I understand you're worried about losing a little bit of share locally, but go after what you can get in the United States. There are people there desperate for your products. But uh, are those doors open? Uh, for instance, uh, let's let's assume the CETA deal gets ratified and everything's fine. Yeah. Uh, can they sell those dairy products in France? Well, that's the, see, this is the concern. France, perhaps... Because uh, as you remember, in the early part of these negotiations, yeah. uh, Stephen Harper went through the same thing yeah. with the dairy industry. Yeah. Well, uh, put the dairy industry aside for a second. Obviously, if you go to France and you say, we'd like to get Canadian wines into France, that's blasphemy in France. Yeah. I think Italy is a different situation there. I, I think Italy is always worried about their cheeses, their famous cheeses, whether it's, you know, um, uh, now I can't think of Parmesan or whether it's uh, some of the other Asiago, hard cheeses. Yeah. Asiago, whatever. I think that might be Greek. But anyway, these, these various cheeses. So they're concerned about that. But I think on balance, there's room for us all. And, and I will tell you, Bill, since this deal was ratified on September 21, 2017, by the European Parliament, our trade with the European Union is up 7%. We're selling 7% more. That's more than the rate of inflation. So it says there is a market for Canadian goods if you can make the tariffs go away. And, and I, I never fear free trade. If you know what you're doing, you can be efficient what you're doing, you can survive in a free trade world. Uh, uh, in fact, tariffs actually, if you will, infantilize an industry because what we're saying to people is you can't compete on a world stage, so we're going to put these artificial barriers to protect you. We need to be good on a global level, and I think a lot of Canadian firms can be. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.